Welcome to a new series of Development Drums, a podcast which takes an in-depth look at key issues in international development. This is Owen Bader from Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. In this 21st edition of Development Drums, we'll be taking a close look at rigorous evaluation of development programs, and in particular at the role of randomized control trials. My guest today is Rachel Glenister, the Executive Director of the Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab, which is a centre in the Economics Department of MIT. Rachel has worked on debt relief and the reform of the international monetary system at the IMF. She's worked on financial regulation at the Harvard Institute for International Development. And before that, she worked at the UK Treasury. Rachel, thanks for coming on to Development Drums. Thank you for inviting me. Let's start by explaining to people the work of the Jamil Poverty Action Lab, JPAL. It was founded, what, six years ago with a mission of ensuring that poverty policy is based on scientific evidence. What do you mean by scientific evidence and what kind of evidence does JPAL produce? So JPAL um, is focused on a very particular methodology of using randomized trials to measure the effectiveness of programs. So we take the concept of um, a randomized trial for medicine, but then apply it to poverty programs. Um, and we use this methodology to answer all sorts of different kinds of questions from how to get more kids in school to uh, how to improve you know, to examine what's the best way to empower adolescent girls in Bangladesh, uh, reducing corruption, uh, post-conflict uh, mitigation, also really all the different kinds of work that's covered by development. Um, so we do, we run these randomized trials um, with partners on the ground. But we also uh, train other people in how to undertake this kind of work and try and disseminate the results of the work um, to so that it feeds into policy. So our idea is that we could improve the effectiveness of poverty programs by giving people better evidence and more evidence about what works. So we both work on producing the evidence, but also trying to get it into policy. So we'll talk in a second about the benefits and limitations of this approach of using randomised trials as, as the cornerstone of your work. Let's start by looking at the kind of findings that uh, JPAL has produced. And you, you mentioned there a, a series of uh, policy interventions in, in the social sphere, things like how do you get uh, kids into school or how do you empower girls? Which, which of these findings so far, and it's early days yet, but which, are, which do you think are the most important for poverty policy? In other words, which, which would make the most difference if, you, if they were better understood and taken up by policymakers? I think the area where we know most and therefore we have most to say about um, two policymakers is in education um, because we've tried different things in different countries and are finding some general lessons emerging from really quite a, a deep wealth of, of um, experiments. That and probably the, um, the other area I'd mention is uh, the impact of user fees. But on education, um, we've 
we've looked at a range of different ways to encourage children to get into in school. Um, and there, I think quite a surprising result was that improving their health, particularly through providing mass school-based deworming, was extremely cheap and effective way of increasing um, children's attendance at school. So let's just let's just pause on the on this deworming finding. Um, so this is a, a scheme where kids, when they show up at school, are given deworming tablets. Yeah, obviously this is only effective in areas that have high worm prevalence, but that is actually a remarkably large percentage of the uh, developing world's population live in areas where their children are liable to get intestinal worms. About 400 million children in the world have these intestinal worms, and they make children anemic, and that makes them less likely to go to school. So um, you can mass treat in areas um, where there's high worm prevalence, and at the cost of about 50 cents a year, you can treat children for these worms that, once treated, they're healthier and more able to go to school. So the theory isn't that they come to school to get the worm treatment, um, as it might be, say, for a school feeding program. The theory is that something about having worms and the health conditions that that causes is stopping kids from going to school. And if you can only treat the worms, then that will help them go to school. Exactly. Exactly. They, as they say, they're likely to get anemic. Um, and also the worms eat the nutrition that the child is meant to be receiving. Um, so they get tired and lethargic and that makes them less likely to go to school and that i think is you know is people health people had known about worms and known about the importance of treating them but the fact that this was an extremely effective education intervention was uh, quite new and as i say when compared with a lot of other ways of getting children in school turned out to be one of the most cost effective so what some people might say is that it's a rather reductionist policy view because if you did treat people with deworming uh tablets is it a tablet or a powder a tablet okay so if you did treat people with deworming tablets then you'd have lots more kids wanting to come to school and you then there wouldn't be enough schools and there wouldn't be enough teachers and there wouldn't be enough textbooks so you can say that it's the most effective thing to do but surely it wouldn't work without all the other things that we're already doing and need to go on well, doing well that's why i said it's the most effective way of getting kids into school we have a we're now learning a lot more about how to improve the effectiveness of education in the classroom which is terribly important because there's a lot of evidence that um, children are going to school regularly and not learning very much in many countries, many poor countries in the world. Um, uh, a lot of the children in India, even when they go to school regularly in standard three and four, grade three and four, um, can't master very basic skills of you know, reading, writing, even recognizing letters, they may find a substantial proportion find hard. So it's very important to, as you say, improve the quality of education in the classroom. And the interesting thing here is we're getting very similar policy conclusions from a lot of different work. And I think, um, you know, in different countries about how, what are the best ways to improve uh, learning in schools and I summarize those as um, teacher accountability, very important, very high levels of teacher absence 
in across the developing across the developing world. So, if children are coming to school but the teacher isn't, you really haven't moved that far forward. So, ways of making teachers accountable、um, are very important in in improving learning. What's, this, what's an example of that? You're, I think you're about to tell us. What's an example? Yeah. So in one program, an NGO who was running their own schools decided to introduce a monitoring system where the teachers、um, had to take a picture of themselves with their children at the beginning and, and end of each day, and their pay was tied to、uh, whether or not they could prove that they were actually at the school during the day. And that increased teacher attendance, also big effect on test scores.、Um, obviously, that could be implemented by this NGO. Very unlikely to be accepted in by civil service teachers. So, in another that that experiment was in in, in India. In another experiment in Kenya, teachers were hired. Local teachers were hired. By communities, and their contract was with the community, not with the central government.、Um, these teachers, extra teachers, were hired because of the big increase in enrolment in Kenya. Lots of other African countries have seen big enrolments、um, as more kids are going to school, as school fees are reduced. That's great, but as you say, leads to lots more kids in school, huge class sizes. So the communities hired the teachers and could fire them too.、Um, and again, those teachers showed up more often. They were less experienced than the government teacher, but they actually got much better test results, not least because they showed up more. Now, you personally are working, I know, in Sierra Leone on a community-driven development scheme. Tell us about. That and what it is that you're studying there. So, across the world, there's lots of community-driven dr- development programs. This is, which vary quite a bit, this, but this is reasonably typical. It's where a community is given a grant to,、um, and a lot of facilitation, a lot of help in thinking, what are the needs of the community,、uh, facilitation to help them work together, make more participatory decisions. Sierra Leone is. An example of a country with a very,、um, very hierarchical system of decision making. So, village chiefs have a lot of power. Village elders have a lot of power. Youth and women are often excluded from decision making, and that is seen by many as a very important reason for the civil war,、uh, which could can be seen as a Intergenerational war rather than an interethnic war in Sierra Leone. So a rebellion of youth against this hierarchical system. So this program was an attempt to provide communities with more decision-making power over devel- development decisions in their community and a grant,、um, but also to try and change the way in which decisions are made in communities and teaching people to be more participatory.、Um, So here, interestingly, the outcome measures that we want to test are not, you know, classic economic outcome measures, but have have decisions are decisions made in a more participatory way? Is there more trust between different community members?、Um, and there, really, the most interesting part of the work is trying to come up with measures of those difficult to measure 
um, concepts. Um, we've worked a lot with local groups. We spend a lot of time in the field figuring out how to ask these questions um, and how to get people to reveal whether, in fact, decisions are being made in a participatory way. So we had, um, we actually set up, in a sense, an experiment um, in the field uh, where people reveal how they act. We ask communities to make a decision about which gift they would like in response, you know, in exchange for being part of our survey and observe how they make that decision and use that as one of the outcome measures. Do they call a meeting? Does the chief just decide how many women come to the meeting? We're in the process of analysing these results Um but it, as I say, this is a big question in development of is it possible as outsiders to come in and try and change these very deep-seated um, ways in which communities have been working? Um, or are they so deep-seated that this kind of program is really not very effective? And what do you think the answer to that question is going to be? Uh, have, I will publish your results. <laughs> Uh, we've still, we're just getting preliminary data back, but we still have one more round of surveys to do. Um, I really, I really don't know what the answer will be. Interesting. And what about your work on microcredit in India? So this is a study which has been getting quite a bit of attention recently. Um, it's very hard to do an impact evaluation of microcredit. And this is um, an attempt the first attempt to do a randomized evaluation of the impact of microfinance on a whole community. So what we did is work with the microcredit organization, Spandana, who has a pretty typical microcredit product of group uh, lending in groups um, to women. They had worked in other parts of India, but were moving into, Hy into Hyderabad. Um, and they picked a larger number of uh, communities within the city than they could work in. But all of them were ones where they would potentially like to work eventually. And we randomized which communities to move into. Um, we then compared the whole community that now had access to microfinance with a whole community that didn't have as much access to microfinance to look at the community-wide effects. And we found some pretty interesting results um, I'd call them mixed. Um, in some ways, microfinance delivered um, on its potential. It increased the number of businesses that were started. Interestingly, businesses that already existed were not hurt and indeed benefited from the arrival of microfinance. And this was interesting because you could think that microfinance, by getting more businesses started, would create more competition um, for the existing businesses and that they would actually do worse. But in fact, they did better. They were able to borrow, invest more in their business, and they saw profits rise. But we saw very different results for different kinds of people in the community. As I say, those who already had businesses benefited. Those who were likely, the kinds of people who were likely to start new businesses uh, started more businesses. They invested more they in durable goods. They actually cut back on other kinds of consumption. Um, so they weren't financing their business just from the microfinance uh, loan, but also from saving um, their own money and investing that. Now, a third group of people who were not likely to start businesses, 
we predict using sort of the initial data, uh, those people increase consumption in general and not investment. So, as I say, you have these three very different responses to microfinance. Um, and overall, we see no increase in consumption for microfinance. And some people have seen that as a bad sign for microfinance. I don't see that as a bad sign at all because you've got some people who are saving and investing, some people who are using the loan to go out and just consume more. Um, we did, we were quite surprised that we saw no impact on impairment in the, uh, of women in the community, no change in the way decisions were made, despite the fact that all these loans were going to women. We also found no impact on increasing attendance or enrollment at school, um, which is something that a lot of microfinance organizations have said that microfinance could help. But again, I'm not surprised with that. Actually, in this area, a lot of kids go to school already, so it would be surprising if you increase that any further. But overall, this is a more positive story than some of the more recent stories that have said that uh, microfinance has very little impact on um, on investment and growth. I mean, you are, you are seeing some people starting new businesses as a result of this. Yes, and actually a lot of the newspaper reports about this study are saying there's no impact. You know, there's very little Im- impact. This is, um, you know, some of the headlines on our study have said small change, um, suggesting that this isn't very much impact. I would say uh, one thing to stress is this was a follow-up after 18 months. So it's quite normal that you would expect people to be investing and you wouldn't see higher income at this point. Maybe there'll be higher income in the future. We don't know. The the potential danger sign is those people who took the loan and just consumed it. Are they going to be further in debt in the future? Um, Again, 18 months is probably too short to know for certain whether they're getting themselves into trouble. Right. Now, your work, the work of JPL generally is, is mainly about what kinds of policies work, you know, how you hold teachers accountable or um, what kinds of microfinance institutions have what kind of effect, um, rather than a, a question of, of whether aid works and whether foreign aid in particular works. Although things like your work in Sierra Leone is looking a bit at whether it's possible for outsiders to change hierarchical decision making and structures but more generally does does the gamut of work that you're doing lead you to a view about whether aid works whether it could work better what the what the overall impact of aid is i don't think we can say in fact i think it's a rather misleading question to say um you know does aid work there are so many different things that aid money is spent on we wouldn't expect to have a single answer to that i do think that it's um our work suggests that we could be much cleverer about using aid um there are an awful lot of areas where that we spend aid money on that we don't really have much evidence about their effectiveness. So I think there's no question that we can improve the effectiveness of aid by uh, doing more rigorous evaluation, by using uh, aid money on the things that we find are most effective. Uh, so, And also, I think an important role for aid is to invest in finding out what works um, because that is a very useful um, 
aid to governments who in most parts of the world are the biggest spenders on anti-poverty um, to help them make their own policies more effective. But as you say, our work is not just about aid. We, we see finding out what works as important for aid and donors, but, uh, but one of our biggest uh, consumers of our work are developing country governments themselves. You're listening to Development Drums with Owen Bader, and my guest is Rachel Glenister, the Executive Director of the Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab. You can subscribe to Development Drums on iTunes, or you can download all the episodes from the Development Drums website at developmentdrums.org. At the website, you can also leave comments about the episodes, and you can download transcripts of the shows. You can also sign up for an email which tells you whenever a new episode is available. Alternatively, you can sign up for our Facebook group, where you'll find information about future episodes, and you can suggest questions you'd like me to ask. Let's, let's turn to some of the methodological questions, and in particular the use of randomised evaluations. That's absolutely at the heart of what the uh, Poverty Action Lab focuses on. Tell us why this is important. Yes, let me first say that while we focus on randomized evaluations, we don't think that that's the only approach that is useful to evaluating programs. It's what we do, and we think there's more room to spend a lot more time doing um, and, and evaluate more programs using this methodology. Why do we think it's a useful methodology and um, there's scope for increasing its use? Um it's because it's, as I said in the example of microfinance, it's actually very difficult often to evaluate the impact of a program. If you, if you think about microfinance, a lot of the ways that people have evaluated its impact in the past has been to s compare outcomes for women in a community who take up microfinance and compare those outcomes with women in the same community who haven't taken up microfinance. And then the assumption is that any difference in outcomes from those who take up microfinance is to those who haven't is due to microfinance. But if you think about it, women who sign up for microfinance when it arrives in their community are different in very important ways from those who don't take up the program. They tend to be more entrepreneurial. Uh, they may be more motivated. Uh, they may be bigger risk takers. And all of those factors that made them sign up for microfinance will also affect their outcomes. So these women may start more businesses, but they may have started more businesses even without microfinance because it's exactly the ones who want to start a business who um, who sign up for microfinance. So it's very, it's, it's virtually impossible, it is impossible to disentangle those two effects, the effect of microfinance versus the effect of the attributes that make someone want to take up microfinance. It's virtually impossible to distinguish those two. Let me just put this in my terms and you can tell me whether I've got this right. So we um, usually can describe reasonably well what has happened to, for example, somebody who uh, takes up microfinance loans. Um, but the difficulty is describing with any um, 
degree of certainty what would have happened without some policy intervention. So we, we can see that something's happened with a policy intervention, but we can't exactly describe whether the policy has worked because we can't observe what would happen to those same people if the policy intervention had never existed. Is that, is that exactly. what Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and randomization gives you a comparison group who um, are as close as you can get to seeing the group that did get the program uh, and what would have, have happened to them if they hadn't got the program. So explain the importance of randomization in this process. Why does randomization give you a better counterfactual? Because, um, it, take the example of our slums, um, instead of comparing women who, who took up microfinance with those who didn't, we take a group of slums and we randomize which ones Spandana will go into. And we can be sure, if we have a large enough sample size, that the slums that they went into were the same in, in every other aspect. Um, to the ones that they did go into, it, with the one exception that one got the program and one didn't. So the, you're isolating the single factor that's different is um, is the program. So that's, it's nothing, you've, you're flipping a coin to determine who gets a program. So it can't be determined by anything else, by motivation, uh, closeness to the road. On all these other factors, people will be identical except whether they get the program. So one big problem that often happens in development interventions is you do a, a pilot study, but you often start off with somewhere where you think a program is likely to work or where you already know uh, uh, somebody in the in the community and, and you pick them for that reason. And of course, that is a non uh, uh, that it may turn out that the reason why something works is because of is the reason that you knew them you knew that person in the village that suggests they're more entrepreneurial and outward going so this takes away all the all the reasons why you've picked one community rather than another community by picking them at random exactly and you know when people roll out they often roll out first to either communities where they know someone or that are near the road or you know near the hotel with a hot shower and now those communities may be uh richer uh, more educated, um, and therefore the program may seem to be working, but actually it's just the fact that people are richer, more educated, closer to the road, and that's why the communities are better off. Now, you were careful at the beginning of this uh, to say that uh, you're not saying that this is the only possible form of rigorous evaluation, but uh, has, randomized evaluation has at times been called a gold standard, uh, which to me conveys the idea that um, it's it's a, a technique that you should use if you can, and you should use a different kind of uh, method only, uh, only if you have considered randomized evaluation. You can't figure out how to make it work. Is it, well, I think it's worth your... making. I, I think it's worth making two distinctions here. One is, if you want to do a rigorous impact evaluation. I would say if you can do a randomized evaluation, that's going to be better. Virtually every other method of doing a rigorous quantitative impact evaluation are all trying to mimic a randomized evaluation. All the other methodologies that are used by economists are really trying to mimic a randomized evaluation, but where you can't. Now, that's very different from saying um, that those other methodologies are, aren't 
useful. Obviously, sometimes you can't do a randomized evaluation. Um, so you can use those. Um, it's also very different from saying that's the only useful method of evaluation, which we would never say. But you any, are saying it's the best. It's the best of the rigorous impact evaluations. Okay. But there's a lot of other kinds of evaluation that needs to be done. This, um, it's too expensive to do rigorous impact evaluations of every single program out there. It's just not possible. It's much better to focus your resources on doing a few really good impact evaluations. And in your other programs, do other kinds of evaluation, process evaluation. Make sure you know that you, you know, you did what you were planning to do. You, you know, the money didn't get stolen. All of that is evaluation. It's desperately important. It has to be done in every single program. Uh, rigorous impact evaluation should only be done in a few, you know, in enough situations to answer key questions, but they don't need to be done in every single program. Now, there are quite a lot of, uh, I don't know, skeptic is the right word, but there are worries from people about whether uh, randomized evaluation is really appropriate in a wide range of cases. And let's let's pause on what some of those um, question what some of those challenges are and one is is an ethical concern you you've used a couple of times in this conversation the word experiment and I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with the idea of experimenting on humans the idea that we um, pick uh, some group of people uh, and uh, provide largesse to them and we pick more importantly we pick some other people and um, deny them those benefits. So what do you say to those people who think that randomized evaluations are playing God with people's lives? We would never ask or work on a program that led to fewer people getting a service than they would if we hadn't been working on the on the evaluation. That would be unethical. We wouldn't do it. We wouldn't be allowed to do it by our universities. Um, we, where we work um, is with programs that have limited budgets that don't, can only reach a certain number of communities or schools or individuals. And then, in a sense, and everyone who's worked in development knows this, you are choosing people to get programs, even though many other people need the help. So I'll give you an example. I'm working with Save the Children in Bangladesh to empower adolescent girls. They were planning to work in three sub-districts in Bangladesh, even though girls in the neighboring sub-districts needed this program just as much as the girls in those three sub-districts. When we came along and helped them do an evaluation, we suggested that they expand. They're now working in five sub-districts, but not Instead of getting every single girl in those three sub-districts, they're getting some of the girls in five sub-districts. The total number of girls, absolutely the same. The total number of communities, the same. Um, it's just sort of spreading it out. It's just using a different rule to decide um, how to allocate. So, people, unfortunately, people in development are playing God all the time. This is just a slightly different way of choosing the people that you're going to work with. 
I've heard some people, um, in, in fact, say that this is a better way of playing God because at least it's a throw of the dice and not some in some untransparent, invisible decision-making process. It's interesting when you a, lo- a lot of people concerned about the ethics of this in developed countries. I've never had a problem in a developing country. When we go to the communities and explain that they're all going to be entered into a lottery uh, to decide who gets the program, people are really pleased. They see this as fair. Um, they, you know, they say, you mean we'll actually get a fair chance? We won't have to bribe someone to get this government program. We, you know, we'll have as much chance as our neighbor who's maybe more politically connected. So yes, it's seen, um, in most communities as a very fair way of making these decisions. Indeed, we've done evaluations of programs that were randomized by governments, even though they never thought of doing an evaluation. The randomization was implemented by the government itself because it was seen as the fairest way to make allocation decisions. So the second um, uh, class of of challenge to this approach is that um, these kinds of interventions, and particularly uh, these social policies, um, you can't really generalise from one experiment to reach any generalizable conclusions so you know in the obvious example of a deworming program it's um, uh, clearly makes sense in communities that suffer from that kind of worm but it you clearly couldn't generalize to communities where there aren't worms and particularly where you're looking for example at how communities are empowered by external interventions, it seems quite possible that 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 only teaches you lessons about that particular community at that particular place at that particular time. Uh, To what extent are these kinds of experiments really giving us broader insights? Um, uh, Are they not just a kind of expensive way of, of uh, of doing aid to a particular community with no real generalizable lessons? Well, the first thing to realize is that potential criticism, and it's something we have to take um, very seriously, is true of all rigorous impact evaluations of any uh, programs. So it's not that randomization is less generalizable. It's just whenever you're studying a particular program, you have to worry about generalizability. The second thing is that's something we can test. Uh, We can test, and we are increasingly doing that, the extent to which we find similar results in different kinds of communities. Um, now, you would, as you say, expect that to be different. Deworming is more likely to generalize to other areas where kids have worms because it's, you know, our bodies all work the same way. Um, and if we're anemic, we're tired, we're, you know, whatever country we live in. Um, so that is, um, you know, that's more likely to generalize. And indeed, that is an example where people have tested it and seen whether it generalized. And you get remarkably similar results in urban India when you address anemia, rural Kenya, um, and the south of the United States when hookworm was, was abolished. So three different continents, three very similar results. In terms of impairment, I would agree with you that that's an area where we would have to be very careful and test different things. We haven't done a series of tests on impairment in different contexts. In other places, though, as I say, in improving education, we found 
that very very similar approaches have worked in India and Africa, for example. Um, so we keep doing this to a remarkable extent. When we test something in a different context, we've found very similar results. So um, I don't know up to. Uh, well, let's take uh, in impairment. We have done it um, the same thing in two different states, very different states within India. Maybe you say, well, it's all within India, but one with very high, uh, much higher than average female literacy, one with lower than average female literacy. The same program had very similar results. Um, you ha- I think it's the other thing you have to be careful with is thinking about how the program works. Understanding in detail how it works helps you to understand how it might generalize. Also, testing deep fundamental principles rather than just kind of a surface program also helps you to get at, you know, the underlying reasons why something may work and therefore help you to think about how it generalizes. That rather segues into a third criticism, which um, is that this approach has tended to focus too much on whether projects work and not enough on why they work, that it's it's generating kind of evidence about the success rates and failure rates, but not enough on that, that there may be small variations in the way that uh, particular projects are implemented and followed through that, that hugely affect whether they're effective or not, and that you're that this approach doesn't really pick that up enough. That it's not it's not um, uh, fine grained enough to pick up those different nuances in how programs are implemented. Right, it certainly is the case that testing a whole variety of different ways of implementing a particular program takes a lot of sample size, um, and therefore is hard to do. But actually. That's not our only way of getting evidence. We, when we do this kind of project, we collect an awful lot of information about the mechanism through which it works. And we can see in the chain of, you know, causation, we can see if a project fails, where it fails. Um, you know, we worked on empowering communities um, to demand better education in India, we can see that the program did lead to increased information about how to make act, to take action. They did know more about who to go to, but they then didn't take any steps. And we can look at a whole range of steps and see which ones they took and which ones they didn't take. Uh, and that can help us understand um, how, how and why a program may fail. So we get a wealth of information from these evaluations, which may not be covered in the headlines. But if you think about my discussion on microfinance, we were looking in quite a lot of detail about who responded and how they responded and what happened. And uh, and that can help us understand some of these more deep lessons. Um, we, are, we are always testing a particular program and policy. So if it isn't implemented well, um, you know, you don't maybe know whether it would have worked if it had been implemented better. Um, but we do a range of things. Sometimes we try and test, you know, a best possible case scenario of this type of policy. And other, other times we want to test, you know, a, a sort of standard run of the mill to see does this 
kind of program work in the way that it's normally implemented? And those will give you very different answers. So a, a fourth uh, challenge is the idea that this approach applies um, reasonably well to small questions. You know, how do you get more teachers in school or how do you get farmers to use new seeds? But that it doesn't apply to the big questions. How do you stimulate economic growth? How can you make government more accountable? Um, and in fact, one of our listeners, Cafford, have asked, um, would you agree that randomised control testing approach is difficult to apply to advocacy programmes which seek to promote policy change? So that's a, a nuance on the same idea, that this is, this is good for measuring the impact of, um, of the kinds of programmes where what you're doing is, is delivering widgets or getting kids in school, but not for the, for the big kind of social changes that uh, probably underlie a development process? I wouldn't agree with that. Um, there obviously are some things that we can't test in this approach. Um, you know, fixed versus flexible exchange rates. It would be difficult to randomise because the unit would be a country. Um, on the other hand, there are assumptions that go into deciding whether uh, you should have a fixed versus floating exchange rate that you would be able to test. But let's look at some of the things we've tested. Maybe you argue these are small. Having user fees or not for education and health um, is something that we can very easily test. Um, and how to improve health systems delivery, how to improve teacher accountability. Now, I don't think those, maybe some people think those are small questions. I don't think they're small questions. I think they're fundamental to how do you make effective government. Um, again, you know, how do you, is it, do you improve, uh, do you have quotas for women? Do you have, um, you know, how do you best combat corruption? Is it from the bottom up with community empowerment or from top down with more auditing? Um, these, these are, these are questions that policymakers are struggling with and there are big debates. Um, again, what's the best way to promote HIV prevention? In some ways, is there any bigger question than that in some parts of Africa? So it's true that we're not directly answering a question like, how do you make a country grow? But I'd argue, that's too big a question for anyone to be able to answer very simply or clearly. What we do is we take that and take that question and divide it up into chunks. Um, you know, a big part of growth is, is improving agricultural productivity. What do you need to do to improve agricultural productivity? We can answer that question. So it's, um, I'd argue we've been looking for simple answers to two big questions. We need to take those big questions, divide them up into sections, test them rigorously, build, build them back together, and then you will have a, um, very specific things you can do to get growth. You know, is it microfinance? Is that going to be part of the answer or not? Um, so... So, yes, they're smaller than maybe these big questions, but I think in the end they build up to um, important policy questions. And your answer to Cafford's question about oh, advocacy. testing advocacy, right. Yeah, that is a hard question to answer, um, but it's not impossible. I think what we, 
we've we've gone into areas that were seen a few years ago as impossible to use this methodology to answer. Um, advocacy is something where we are starting to sit down with the people who do it and brainstorm about how we can use this methodology to answer the question. Um, again, you may be only be able to get at bits of it, but we always encourage people who are who we work with to take what they do and break it down into segments and task different bits together. And you may not get all of the, you know, you may not be able to test all of the program, but there are about, there are definitely going to be bits of advocacy that you could test in this way. You've mentioned a couple of times your research into user fees in health and education. What approach have you been taking on user fees and what are your findings so far? So we've looked at the different arguments, both for and against user fees. Um, the argument against is that user fees depress demand for critical health and education services um, a lot, especially by the poor. Um, those in favour have argued that user fees can help target products and services to those who need the most. Uh, it can make sh make sure that those, if someone pays for something, they're more likely to use it. So it makes um, more likely these products will be used. So we've tested those uh, points. Um, the way that's done is by either randomizing the price at which people are offered products individually or you know one clinic will be will give out bed nets for free another clinic will charge a small user fee for them and then we can follow up and see how much did the user fee depress demand and did paying for it uh, make people more likely to use it and overall I the the response is actually very consistent and very clear across countries and across products small user fees um have a very big impact on demand. So to give you one example, um, going from zero to 75 cents for insecticide-treated bed nets uh, in maternity clinics in Kenya reduced demand by 75%. So 75 cents is a tiny fraction of the cost of a bed net, and yet 75% of mothers were not taking the bed net if they had to pay 75 cents for it. Uh, very similar effects on in deworming. You get a sharp drop in attendance at school if people have to pay for uniforms, which were, you know, a cost of going to school, so similar to, say, charging a fee for school. Um, chlorine, uh, so lots of different products, and in Zambia, and Kenya, both very similar results. And, and the so, result is that, that at, at, a, at around zero, the, the impact of even a very, very small price is to deter an enormous number of people from taking up the service. Yes. And we also, uh, and it has none of the positive effects that people had hoped they would have. So it, um, it doesn't help you target products on those who need them most. Um, in most of the cases, there was no screening effect, i.e. those who were not likely to use it, um, not, you know, screening those out by charging. There was no, there was no evidence of a psychological effect that if you pay for something, you're more likely to use it. What about the impact on the suppliers? Because it's often said that if 
people have a commercial incentive, they will be more active in getting people to use a bed net or to take it up. You know, that you'll you'll create a chain of people with an interest in higher take up. Well, it doesn't. Um, it certainly doesn't promote take up. It's not helping the suppliers promote take up, and it's not helping the suppliers promote use. But the one thing that could possibly happen is that the providers don't turn up to work if they can't pocket the user fees. Um, and that's something that is worth looking into. I would argue that given the huge negative impact on demand of user fees, it's much better to try and motivate your providers to show up to work in other ways. And we talked about some of those other ways earlier. Um, so because if you use user fees as a way to get your suppliers to show up to work, you're having a terrible effect on the poor not getting the product. So, you know, better to better to come up with other ways to, to motivate suppliers. And um, there's also issues of potential corruption of um, people announcing that they're getting rid of user fees, but providers on the ground still requiring bribes to give them the service. Those are complicated, difficult issues that we're, you know, we're working to, to look into and try and find ways to um, to address. So I'm not saying that all the questions about user fees have been answered, um, but it is, it, it's clearly uh, very bad for take-up. One of your colleagues, uh, Esther Duflo, who's recently uh, been awarded one of the MacArthur uh, grants, uh, said a few years ago, um, uh, I quote, creating a culture in which rigorous randomized evaluations are promoted, encouraged and financed has the potential to revolutionize social policy during the 21st century, just as randomized trials revolutionized medicine during the 20th century. Is that where you see this going? Do you see there being the kind of change in development policy uh, in this century that we saw in medicine uh, last century? I'm very encouraged by what I've seen over the last few years. Uh, There was a lot of concern that people in development wouldn't want to see rigorous randomized evaluations. Uh, NGOs would be nervous that they would be proved to not have be having an effect instead we've seen ngos and governments um take up this idea with a lot of enthusiasm we've seen an incredible burst of interest in this methodology uh we want run training programs to train other people to do it and that are always massively oversubscribed uh, my phone is ringing off the hook with people wanting to do this kind of work and also i think most encouragingly we're seeing governments come to us and say um you know, tell us what you're finding. Tell us what works. We want to improve the effectiveness of our programs and we want to learn from the best possible evidence. Um, so I am seeing a revolution. In a, a few years ago, none of the big international NGOs were doing very much of this kind of work. And now most of them are doing this kind of work. Similarly, governments, are, donor governments around the world are are showing a lot of interest. The World Bank is doing hundreds of these rigorous randomized trials. Um, and, you know, it started in the Africa region. Within a couple of years, they were doing 100 across Africa. They're working with governments in Africa. I was recently at a, a workshop in Alice um, 
with governments from across Africa and the enthusiasm from the from the representatives from governments to do this kind of work was just really inspiring. It seemed in the early days that a lot of this was driven by uh, evaluators to whom this kind of work had been outsourced and that very few organisations were thinking strategically about how randomised controlled trials could inform their strategy, could uh, influence their operations. It, do you think that's changing? Is this is this getting into the strategic lifeblood of decision making by uh, both by governments and by aid agencies, or is it still a bit of a um, a nice to have add on that that some people who are interested are, are experimenting with, albeit on an increasing scale? I think when an organisation first takes on this kind of work, they tend to pick a program. Um, where there happens to be interest and not think so strategically about what's my most important program to test. Um, But then over time, as they get more comfortable with the approach, you see them being more strategic. Um, I think an example of this kind of strategy is our work that we're just launching with the Gates Foundation uh, Agriculture Group to look systematically about what do we know and what do we not know about how to promote the use of new technologies that could help small farmers in Africa. Uh, You know, what do we know? What do we not know? Where are the gaps? Let's fund the research to fill those gaps. We've done a similar project with the Nike Foundation. What do we know? What do we not know about um, empowering adolescent girls? What are the questions? Let's design some evaluations to answer those specific questions so um, again the world bank is um, is thinking you know much more strategically a lot of people want to do this work and they're choosing the the projects that answer those their most important questions so i think it's unsurprising that when people do their first one they kind of experiment around the edges but as they get more comfortable they think more systematically about this And one last question, which comes from another listener, Jimmy Greer, asked on Twitter, what, if possible, do you think is the single biggest objection or obstacle, if there is one, to scaling up randomized trials? I mean, I would say, as I said before, you don't want to do these everywhere. Um, So, you know, they are expensive to do. Not that randomized trials are more expensive than other rigorous impact evaluations, but rigorous impact evaluations are expensive. So um, I don't want, I think they can be scaled up from where they are now, but I don't want every project in every place to be doing them. Um, In terms of, you know, maybe that's a hard one for me to answer because I think they should, I think they should, I I don't see many of the criticisms as, as, you know, fundamental to, uh, you know, to to saying these shouldn't be done. Obviously, they need to be done in the right place at the right time to answer sensible questions because they're expensive. Um, and that's, you know, that's how I see the future of these as part of an overall evaluation strategy, um, answering your biggest question that you most want answered in an accurate way. Rachel Glenister, thanks for joining me on Development Drums. Thank you very much.
You've been listening to Development Drums, and my guest today has been Rachel Glenister, the Executive Director of the Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab. My guests next time will be Roger Thoreau and Scott Kilman, authors of Enough, a book about why the world's poorest starve in an age of plenty. And let me say welcome and thanks to Anna Scott, the new producer of Development Drums, and thanks to Development Initiatives. If you want to suggest topics for this series of Development Drums, please go to our website at developmentdrums.org or go to our Facebook group. From me, Owen Bader and Addis Ababa, thanks for listening. Listen.